This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Good morning. Dorf and myself, I'm grounded. Um, it's such an honor to be with you. Ek sien uh, bekende gesichte. Um, dankie dat jylle weer kom luister. <laughs> I feel like this is the, the fourth year, I think, in a row that um, I've been asked to share. Bye, dankie, see us. It really is a privilege. Um, and thank you for trusting me with um, the mic. <laughs> this is great van you. So, because this is... Um, the, the fourth time, I felt compelled to um, zoosh up my story a little bit, add some some music and a few pictures in a biggie bells and whistles. Net a Mitsubiki to spice it up. So um, I felt like I <laughs> I just wanted to show you some some pictures of my life. It's um it's the pictures that people normally don't see. Like when you go to visit um your friend at their mom's house and the mother pulls out the family album and she shows the baby pictures to people and you cringe a little bit, but you're also like, Okay, you really know me better now and then it adds to a like a new vulnerability in your friendship with that person. So I just felt like I wanted to open that up to you guys. Okay, I'll come on. That's me. Um I was born uh, prematurely, and um, I was smaller than a doll. There was a pop next to me, and um, I was very small. And that didn't really change. By the age of 28, I am still very small. Um, Okay, so um, that's sort of my personality. Um, I have FOMO which is fear of missing out regularly. So uh, we were in conversation, um, and I felt I just wanted, I didn't want to miss out on anything. And as uh, my parents and the people were caring, um, I, I sat there, and I constantly wanted to fall asleep because I was, I was a baby, and I was very tired. And then just as I fell asleep, my dad put his hand just in between the table and my head and caught my head, and someone caught it on camera. So... That pretty much sums up my life. Um, this is a picture of my mo- me and my mom and me and my dad. Um, dad is rocking the Hawaiian t-shirt. Huh? Classy. Um, and just as this is part of my story and this is part of my testimony that um, our parents make mistakes and our parents um, fall short and they don't always... Their choices aren't always the best ones for us. But there's so much grace on them, and God entrusts our lives to them still. And um, I usually tell my story, and I always love to start with that I really love my parents, and that they, in my eyes, like God has restored the way that I look at them. They are perfect for me. I love them so much, and God has really redeemed our story. So um, that's hope to you if you are going through something in terms of your parents and in terms of brokenness. I come from a broken house. My parents got divorced when I was four years old. Um, So to be able to stand here and really testify of God's goodness in terms of restoration is really, really huge for me. And it's always been the cry of my heart, like, God, I want to stand in front of people completely whole and say that there is redemption in every kind of story, even if it's broken to the core. Um, That is just a big testimony. Okay, and that is fast forward how many years later. Um, that is 
my dad, also rocking the cycling glasses. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, pops. Um, he actually came to visit me on the set of Furifuos um, when we were filming in 2016, and it was a big surprise for me. Um, and so, even though I was still working through a lot of stuff, um, he, it's in the small things. It's God showing you how much he loves you, even through small acts like that. Um, and then me and my mom at Furry Fools premiere, um, she felt like it was her premiere. She actually wanted to become an actress. Um, this is also how I knew what my calling was. People ask me, Simonai, how do I know what my calling is? And I'm like, look at your baby pictures. Um, so ballet, trompopis. The one at the top right, I think it's just that I've been wanting to get married since I was three years old. But my mom says I just like dressing up. Um, and then the one beneath there, um, our dog died, and um, I invited everyone in the street to come to the funeral, and I obviously hosted the service, um, and everyone had to cry, and I kept on um, scolding the girl at the back, Natasha, I don't know if you can see, but she's playing with a dog, and I was really mad at her because she didn't cry. Yeah, so uh, I've always felt like entertainment and ministry was going to marry, and God has been doing that as well, so... Um, and then, oh, okay, anyway, um, and that's just a glimpse, highlights of my life. Um, that's me and Zichlinde, she's here at the front. Uh, we met at Bethel's Creativity Conference last year, which was amazing. God really encountered us and um, released so much creativity and boldness. Um, that was when my mom got um, engaged a few years ago, and that was my first time in New York, and that was um, the last take on Fiddy Force as well. Fiddy Force is... All right, but so though um, these are glimpses of my life, I think the core thing for me is that um, though that describes pieces of your life, it's not my identity. Um, I am not my job. I am not, um, I am not, I am my mother's daughter, but that's not, that doesn't define me. What defines me and what defines you and I is our history with God, actually. Identity to the core is how much have you encountered the, um, the embrace of the Father? How many times have you sat with Him and seen His love for you and, um, and taken in <laughs> that you are a son and you are a daughter? Because I can easily get my identity from what I do, but it's not going to sustain me. And eventually, if I, if I live from the praise of man, I'm going to die by that criticism. But the only thing that will sustain, the only thing that will make you strong, the only thing that can make you whole is, um, is sitting with Jesus and encountering him. And so these are just glimpses that I, I actually found on my, on my cell phone of encounters that I had with the Lord. Um, the one was at a prophetic conference, and the other one was I went for ice cream and I journaled. And the other one is I had a road trip from Los Angeles to Reading, a 10-hour road trip. And I thought it was just going to be fun, me and Jesus in the car. And then it turned out to be a 15-hour nightmare. Um, but that was me and the Lord, and he really, he, it was such a, a holy time with him and such an intimate time in the car with him. Um, the one night I was... 
I was lying in bed and I was just crying out for more of Jesus. I just wanted to go deeper. I just wanted to taste that, the sweetness. I, I was literally crying in my bed just for more and more and more of Jesus. And, um, and the next morning, I woke up and I found a picture on my phone, the last picture that was taken. And it was taken like two o'clock in the morning and I wasn't awake. I was fully asleep. Um, and it's that one with the lights. And I, I felt the Lord ministered, um, to it through me and, and he, yeah, it was just such a special thing. Like he, he was there. Um, and I found it on my phone. Supernatural things that happen because God wants to show you how much he loves you. Um, so, um, just one second. So I think. And that your history with the Father um, really defines your identity and how established you are as a son or a daughter. And um, sociologists actually says they have this concept of the looking mirror or the looking glass, um, that you become who the most important person in your life thinks you are. You eventually grow into that. And if the most important person in your life is Jesus, I mean, how easy would it be to be formed into the likeness of who, of who he is? We become like him because we abide in him. And um, in, in Matthew 16, Jesus describes it so well. I think I, I, did, I put it in there. Sorry, it's very small. It's the first time I made a presentation for this. I really felt fancy. My get niche. Anyway, so Matthew 16, um, Jesus and Peter have, have a conversation um, about identity. And Jesus um, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, um, or he asks his disciples, who, who do you say I am? Um, and verse 16, um, you can follow in your Bibles, Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. Um, uh yeah, Jesus says to Peter, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Um, so I'm going to go back. He asks the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus makes it personal. Then Jesus comes back to the core of it all and he asks, okay, that's what they say, but who do you say I am? Um, because that's what intimacy looks like is you know who the other person is. And um, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The thing is that Jesus, it's not that Jesus was insecure about who he is. And he's like, okay, guys, just tell me, who, who are the people saying I am? You know, are they getting it right? Am I doing my job? Jesus wanted to test their hearts. Jesus wanted to know, do you know who I am? Because if you know who I am, then you will know who you are. So there's a transaction that happens when we look at Jesus and we can say, you are Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are my Lord. You are, you are my bridegroom. Then Jesus looks back at you and he says, and this is who you are, Simone. This is who you are, Peter. You are, he changes your name. There's a transaction that happens. You are not Simon, the unstable, emotional, irrational, 
impatient <laughs> disciple. You are Peter. You are steadfast. You are a rock. On this rock, I will build my church. I will give you the keys to your calling. This is who I say you are. And so early in my life, I realized that if I go by what other people say about me or what, what um, other people have put on me, even if it's good things, that it's it's not going to hold. The rock that is Jesus, the rock of my identity is, is my history with God. And that cannot be shaken. And on that, God can build his kingdom. On that, God can build his church. On a bride who is steadfast in her identity. On a church that knows who we are. And on that, we can go into the world and actually be good at what Jesus gave us to do. We can actually be fruitful. We can actually multiply. Not because we're doing it from a place of striving or because we feel the need to do it or because we're like little soldiers, but because we want to. Because that's what good children do is we tell people about our good, about our good father. Um, it comes from a place of love. It comes from a place of intimacy. Anyway, so it's a well-known fact that identity is something that is, you don't have to, you can, you can also stop. Um, that identity is something that is and should be bestowed on us by our fathers from a young age. When our fathers or parents are broken and they lack knowledge of, of who they are, um, they cannot give identity to us. Um, and we start forming thought patterns that go against that of sonship and belonging. And that is called the orphan spirit. Dum, dum, dum. Um, so I, I have a little issue with this orphan mentality. I feel like it's my life mission to root it out and to just go after it with all my might and everything that is in me because I've seen its destruction in my own life and I continuously see it in the lives of other believers. That the orphan... Um, just operates out of lack. The orphan operates out of mistrust. The orphan doesn't really believe the goodness of God. The orphan questions the goodness of God. Um, the, it just keeps us from, from walking in our full destiny, and that is to walk in the fullness of what Jesus paid for us to have. So Jesus dies on the cross. He opens a new life for us. We are, new, we are a new creation. But you may be saved for 22 years, but you still don't know who you are, and you struggle walking in the fullness. Am I right? Um, being held captive and being in bondage with thoughts of worthlessness and failure and condemnation and guilt and shame and everything that is not part of what Jesus paid for us to have. So there's the old creation, there's the new creation, and Jesus is in the middle. And Jesus says, um, you, you must be saved and you give your heart to me. But as soon as you step into the new creation, you have to start thinking like me. When we have the mind of Christ we start becoming like Christ as well. Because you are what you think, isn't that? Anyway, I'm going into it very quickly. Thank you. I'm a words of affirmation kind of girl. So if you agree, I am my amen skrea. I feel loved. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm not kidding. So, um, so my story, as I said earlier, really is, um, the orphan spirit, really, me and the orphan spirit, we go a long way back. Um, and, uh, it actually happened in my mom's womb. So, who here, who, wie het al die story gehoor? 
Okay, great. So if I leave out some of the details, you could just help me, correct me. Um, anyway, so I, my, my mom and my dad, um, they were not married and uh, my mom became pregnant out of wedlock. Now, in 1989, when you were a woman in the South African Air Force and you got pregnant and you were not married, then uh, you were immediately fired. So you lost your job. You didn't have a backup plan. Um, nothing happened to the other party, but that's okay. Um, so my mom was uh, was in the face, or she had to face um, losing her job, um, losing her reputation. She built up a career in the Air Force for 12 years, and suddenly um, it was going to be taken away from her. My father's uh, my father's dad was a politician, and he was a farmer, and um, just a, quite a religious background. So my father obviously had the had to go back home and face his dad, and there was a lot of shame on it. Um, and so uh, there was a lot at stake, and uh, they decided together um, to go for an abortion. Now, the first time that they visited an abortion clinic, um, the abortionist, the doctor, um, I still haven't really Googled that, abortionist. Is that something with Iman? It's abortionist. Hmm, sorry. Um, the abortionist uh, had, a, had a chat with my mom, and he, he asked her who her general is. And so he knew my mother's general, um, General Galdenais, who was the head of the Air Force at that stage. And he knew that the general had quite a soft spot for my mom. Like he was really, he looked after her well, um, and she was her P, his PA. Um, and because he, re- he recognized my mom and he knew her general, he just completely, uh, he said that he was not going to do the abortion because the general might find out. So praise Jesus that his conscience was stirred in that moment. Um, and they had to go find another plan. They decided to go to another abortion clinic. Um, when they arrived in Lesotho, so they decided to take it across the border, some skin veiliger. Um, they got to Lesotho, documents, everything ready. And when they got there, the doctor wasn't there because he went overseas for research. Um, they, the receptionist, uh, uh, apologized profusely, and uh, she said, okay, we'll just make an appointment for next week, Friday, 2 p.m. It's in my diary, and we're so sorry for, for the miscommunication. Um, they go back to Pretoria. They go back to the to the abortion clinic in Lesotho, and lo and behold, when they arrive at 2 p.m., the clinic is closed down by police. So it was all was so the police closed it down because it was an underground abortion clinic and they were just too late, but obviously in God's time. Um, that was the third, ta- the third time. Strike four, when they went again, because they are quite persistent, and praise Jesus because I have that in my personality as well. Um, the fourth time the abortionist said to my mom that it's too late, that she's 12 weeks pregnant already and it has health consequences for her. So after the fourth time, uh, they still sat with baby and it was still a problem. Uh, my mom took leave um, a month before she would um, go into labor. People in the Air Force were starting to talk about it because why isn't she losing her job, um, etc. And uh, she decided to put me up for adoption. 
And so every mom that gives her baby away for adoption um, has to go for uh, a therapy and, um, and has to go see a social worker. So as my mom was sitting with a social worker on, I think it was the 11th of May, um, the social worker said to her, Tinky, that's my mom's name, um, I know that I'm not supposed to say this to you, and I know that, you know, this is a bit unprofessional, but I really just feel on my heart that won't you reconsider because I really feel like God says you will be an amazing mother and that God, like God has a purpose with us. He can turn it around for you. And my mom just became utterly flustered. She, I already had a family. Everything was in place. Everything was, was working out the way it should. And uh, she looked at the time and she realized that her parking meter was running out and she didn't want to get a ticket, which is great in Cape Town. So... Sometimes traffic officers are used by God. That's what I want to say. Um, anyway, so she jumped up and she said, I'm sorry, I have to leave. I'm going to get a fine. Um, but I'll come back next week and then we can finalize the adoption papers. Because she still needed to fill in a few a few things and um, put her signature on the documents. Um, but that didn't happen in that session, so she ran out. Lo and behold, <laughs> I love saying that, uh, she went into labor one month too early, which was on the 18th of May, 1990. And um, she went to the hospital. She thought that she just had a cramp. It might have been an apple that she ate. My mom's in denial. Um, and when she got to the hospital, she went into labor. I think it was an hour or so. She said that it was very quick. Um, but earlier this year, when my mom told me the story again and she went into a bit more detail, she said to me that um, she never felt God's presence so tangibly than when she laid there giving birth to me all by herself. My father wasn't there. None of her friends were there. No one knew she was pregnant. Her grandmother, my grandmother, her mom didn't know that she was pregnant. She was all by herself. Um, and the labor process went by so quickly and it was so effortlessly. It was almost like God was squeezing her hand and saying, it's going to be okay. And that was his comfort to her in that moment, lying there and, um, and giving birth to me. And the doctor that, that caught me, the um, midwife and the gynecologist, um, didn't know that I was an adoption baby. And if you are an adoption baby, then you need to be taken out of the out of the um, hall, out of the, the track um, as soon as possible. But he didn't know that I was an adoption baby because I was born a month too early and it was a different gynecologist because my mom's gynecologist was overseas for holiday. Don't know why everyone is overseas at great times, but okay. Um, and so, so the gynecologist who called me didn't know and instead of taking me out of the room, he immediately put me on my mom's breast. And... With that initial mother-daughter contact, um, my mom couldn't resist me, obviously. <laughs> um, still, she asked that I was, I, I'd be taken out, and I was put into an incubator. I think an incubator. I was just put with a premature ba- premature babies. But I was very healthy, and I was like, there was nothing wrong. Um, I think I was just very strong. <laughs> on the inside. Um, and then two days after that, my mom and two of her friends the, and the social worker came to see her and they, 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 like, they went to the baby room. And um, 
they picked me up and I was just crying um, profusely. And the one tried to comfort me and passed me on to the next one. And I cried and cried. And then eventually they looked at my mom and they just put me in my mom's arms. And when I landed in my mom's arms, I stopped crying and I just looked at her like this. And in that moment, I think that's when I, when I found home. And actually last year, um, the great thing about living a life with Christ is that continuously he will show you and reveal to you moments in your life where he was and continuously heal you, even though you don't even know that it was something that you needed. But last year when, when we were at Bethel, um, I was in worship and it was on my birthday, the 18th of May. Um, and God took me back randomly to that moment in time where I was passed on from the one lady to the next and into my mom's arms. And he showed me that, um, like almost an out-of-body perspective vision, when I was put into my mom's arms, um, the reason why I stopped crying was because behind my mom stood Jesus, and I locked eyes with Jesus. And that's why the crying stopped, because I saw him, and, and his presence filled that moment. And even as a baby, and in my spirit, I, I knew everything was going to be okay. And so how gracious of God to meet us in the moments of our greatest pain, and in the moments of our greatest abandonment, and to, and to heal that again. Eventually, to go back to the story, my mom decided to keep me. Um, she would name me Simone. Um, she didn't know that the name meant God hears, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, and my father decided to ask my mom to marry him. Uh, him. Um, before that, my mom won the case um, against the Air Force, and she became the first woman in the South African Air Force to be able to keep her baby and her job um, and they got they got married, and then four years later, they they eventually got divorced as well. Um, the thing is that even though the story is pretty amazing and it is miraculous, and well, twenty seven and a half years later, I can see God's redemption, and I can see that the glass is not half empty; the glass is half full. Um, it's not that I wasn't wanted; it's actually that I was wanted. Um, I, I was pretty depressed in 2006 when I found out about my history and I found out about everything that happened. Um, unstable, incredibly and irrationally sensitive for someone my age. Um, just sensitive for any form of rejection or abandonment. Um, and I think it's because the scars were already deep for me. So even though I didn't know what happened in my past, I could feel it in my behavior. I could see it in my behavior. Every day waking up was such a burden. Um, waking up and going through the day was so, um, it was so hard for me to get through high school. It was so hard for me to stay on top. It was, it was like the, it was like rejection and abandonment was suffocating me every single day of my life. Though I have given my heart to the Lord, although I did go to church every Sunday, I, I just really, I was on, in survival mode, um, for, for so many years of my life. Um, until September 2006, when I um, completely surrendered my heart to Jesus and completely um, just laid down my life for him. And uh, it was uh, at a Winkelspreit camp um, in 2006, and Retief Berger was the worship leader. And um, they were... 
they stretched a big rope from the one side of the hall to the to the opposite side, and they gave us um, tiny pieces of rope um, or tiny pieces of string. And the the pastor was saying that the rope is Jesus, and the string is your life. And um, when you feel ready, you know, just tie your string to the big piece of string um, as a sign of surrendering and, and giving your life to Jesus. Um, and Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. Abide in me and you will you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot be whole. Apart from me, you cannot walk out your calling. Apart from me, the things and the purposes that I have planned for you will not come to being because you have to abide in me. The fruit that you want to bear, you cannot bear without me, you have to abide in me. And in that moment, everyone was happily tying their strings to the rope and saying, Ooh, hallelujah, and leaving the room eventually after worship. And I stood there and I was incredibly angry with the Lord. I was 16 years old and I was utterly broken and I was so depressed and I had no hope for my life. I felt abandoned and rejected at every at every glance that I received, always feeling that people were against me, always feeling that I wasn't good enough, always feeling that I have to work for my place in the sun, always feeling that a little more leadership positions, some of this, a bit more status would, would finally gain me the affection and the love that I needed. And, and just on a side note, God is not intimidated by your pain. And God is not intimidated by your questions. Because most of the time, he knows that even though we demand answers, he knows that we actually just need relief from pain. That's actually what we want. That's actually what we need. That's actually what he offers us. It's not always the answers, but it is relief from pain. As long as your circumstances don't change what you know about his goodness. Because circumstances does not define who he is. It doesn't define his goodness. It doesn't define his faithfulness. And circumstances want you to believe that that's not the truth, but it is. He's so steadfast. Anyway, and so in that moment, I I was so angry, and um, I held on to my piece of string. And when everyone left the room... Um, I encountered Jesus like I never have before. And um, uh, it felt like like the power of God just went through my body from like the top of my head to the tips of my toes. And I, I felt warm on the inside. And I fell to my knees and I started weeping and weeping and weeping. And, and that's such a sign of the Holy Spirit and, and the Lord's presence, am I right? Have you ever, like, walked into church and you just couldn't stop crying? Because that is actually a manifestation of the Holy Spirit at work. And the presence of God is that it softens your heart. It makes your heart tender again. And I fell to my knees and I heard God say three things to me that changed my life forever. And the first thing that he said is, Simone, I've loved you before you loved me. And I chose you before you chose me. And by that stage, I didn't even know that it was in the word. (laughs) Afterwards, I'm like, oh, Ephesians 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Did break my brain. It's so good. (laughs) Like adoption as sons according to his pleasure and will. He loves you being a son. (laughs) It's his absolute pleasure to have you as his daughter and his son. 
The second thing he said is, um, I will turn your pain into purpose. I have a plan for your life. Because at that stage, I was so hopeless and I was so depressed. And I couldn't see that God can use anything for, his rede- for, for redemption or for his glory. I just couldn't understand how he could turn that around and make something good come off it or come, come from it. Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Um, and then, um, oh, also in Genesis 50 verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers who have abandoned him and have like caused him to go to Egypt and went through all of the pain, um, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Um, And then the third thing that God said to me is that um, forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. And that is the same thing that Jesus says to us when we go through pain and when people abandon us or reject us or say things to us or I don't know where you are in your life and I don't know what people have done to you and I don't know the pain that you might be going through or have gone through. But I can say to you that Jesus won't ask something of you that he hasn't already gone through. And on the cross, when he said to the Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing, he was giving us, um, he was giving us a second chance. He was giving us, um, uh, he was giving us a yeah, second chance. Sorry, I just thought of something else. Um, and so when he says to us, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. He's saying that if, Simone, if your parents knew, if they knew the goodness of God, if they knew the promises I have for them, if they know who they are, they won't do it. And so we have to give people that, that clause. We have to give them that chance that if they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. And that really empowered me to a, to a next level to be able to forgive my parents, to be able to forgive my father, to be able to forgive my mother, to say that if my father knew that children are a blessing from the Lord, if my father knew what a blessing there would be in a father-daughter relationship, if my father knew that in his absence I would grow up broken and rejected, he, he wouldn't have done it. But he didn't know any better. And so God steps in and he says, your parents made mistakes. Your mom didn't know. Your father didn't know. But here I am. Please take me. This is my invitation to be a perfect father for you. This is my invitation to be, to be the mother and the nurturer that you'd never had or that you didn't know. Or the friendship with God, the friendship, Jesus becomes a sibling to us. He's the brother. He's the older brother. And so we can have that relationship with him in restoration. Um, Anyway, and so um, when Jesus stepped into my life from that day on in 2006, I was made a new creation completely. And I remember sending a message to my mother and my father, and I said, um, I, I completely forgive you, and I love you, and Jesus filled my heart, and I feel like I have hope again for the first time in my life. And I feel, I, I feel love so tangibly that I, it, it overflows. And when the love of God fills your heart, nothing, nothing is impossible, and nothing can take that hope away. But something that I did realize throughout my years after coming to salvation is that there were certain thought patterns that, that still remained that, um, that God needed my partnership with. 
in order to break free and in order to get to walk into freedom. So we give our hearts to Jesus, as I mentioned earlier. We become saved. And then I was, I was still, I, I still felt captive. I still suffered from rejection. I, I went to, um, hostel. I was in Rina Kosais and, um, I was depressed to the point of suicide. I went into bad relationships and bad cycles and just emotional. I was, still was an emotional wreck. I came to church. I couldn't stop crying because God was showing me who the Father is and I couldn't deal with it because it was just too much for me to handle. And so God started, um, started saying to me, because I went to him, and I'm like, God, you can have my heart again, Jesus, just take my heart, just take my heart, just take my heart, and coming forward for altar calls like 700 times, and God was like, I have your heart, (laughs) you are a new creation, but can I have your mind? Because if we want to become like Jesus, and we want to behave like Jesus in true sonship, then we need to start thinking like sons, we need to start thinking like daughters. But the orphan spirit and the orphan mindset says to you that you are not worthy, says to you the complete opposite. And so we partner with Holy Spirit, with the truth, to replace old mindsets and to replace the orphan mindset, to replace the lies that God wants to shine his light on that keeps us bondage. And um, and so some of the um, the traits of an orphan spirit... Yeah, Um, the old creation uh, still acts like an orphan, um, and the new creation walks as a son. The old creation still acts like a slave on the father's property, uh, but the son knows that he doesn't have to strive. Uh, The orphan fights for a place at the table, but the son invites people to the table. The orphan feels that God is far, and the son trusts that the father is near even if he doesn't see him. And so I want to propose to you that even if you have been in the father's house for 22 years, that you can still be an orphan. Because the oldest son in the, in the, the story of the prodigal son, the older brother was still an orphan, even though he was in the father's house. Because the prodigal son went out and he squandered his inheritance. He came back, the father received him, and he said, you are back in my house, you are still, a, you are, you are still my son. And he bestowed sonship on him. The older brother went to his father in resentment, saying, you didn't, um, you, you didn't give me a party, you didn't give me that, why, why didn't I receive that, which is entitlement, which is also a, a fruit of orphanhood. And the father said to him, but you were with me this whole time. You were in my house this whole time. My presence should have been enough for you because you are with me. But the oldest son was still entitled. The oldest son still wanted stuff to make him feel worthy. And the father said, you have us by my, and you still operated out of orphanhood. I want you as the older brother, you were supposed to go out and look for your younger brother. But you stayed, you stayed in the house. You didn't want to. You felt like, well, the Lord, he, he deserves it. And so I, I really felt like Father God was wanting to, um, to put his finger on this thing that's keeping us, keeping us back and keeping us in bondage. 
In Romans um, 8 verse 15 says, um, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Because I didn't have a a steadfast and an emotional relationship with my father, for years and years and years, I struggled to see God as a good father. For years and years, I still still felt that he was far the lies that I were believing was that God is not emotionally invested in your life. And so I'm a Christian and I love Jesus and I easily, I can easily access Jesus. So I can easily um, talk to Jesus and converse with Jesus, but I couldn't access the Father. I couldn't really understand God's Father heart toward me. I couldn't really understand what this thing is about sonship. Why is it a big deal? Why, why does it liberate me? Jesus, Jesus frees me and Jesus delivered me. And yes, he did. But by his blood, we can access the Father. Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father's heart so that we might not live as orphans any longer. And so if that revelation doesn't penetrate our hearts deeply and intimately and constantly, then the change and the fruit in our lives will not be sustained and it will not have the effect that we want it to have on the world around us. Because what you live out here, you will live out there. And some of us struggle, we just we struggle constantly to share the gospel. We struggle to love people. I struggle to love people. I did not enjoy people. And I I constantly blamed it on being an introvert, but that wasn't the truth. The truth is that I felt inadequate in people's presence. I felt like I wasn't really loved. I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel welcome anyway if I wasn't invited, if I wasn't pulled in. And then Jesus changed my heart and he says, you invite people now because I, I make a place for you at the table. I seat you with me. You are seated with me. And from that place of knowing who I am, I can invite others to the Father's house. I'm no longer the older brother that sits like this and and expects people to just come because they should know the love of the Father. No, I am compelled to show them the love of the Father. And so this morning I am... I, I struggled with unworthiness, incredible unworthiness, that my identity was only arrived by what I was doing and whether or not I was... Um, Achieving new things and more things. Um, prestatie gewees. Prestatie gewees. <laughs> Just talking English of course, I don't know where that came from. Um, it was steeped in comparison, um, that I was always comparing myself to other people. Um, I think if the, if the worship team can come. Just lead us into, just into God's presence as we, as we land this airplane. The three things I struggled with most, and I, um, I ask you to really, to really go deep in your heart and, and ask the Lord certain questions this morning. The first thing I really struggled with was comparison, incredible comparison. It didn't matter if I was on the ESAR or whether I was Roka or I was the best student in the drama faculty or I am. Um, 
even in ministry, you can arrive that in, you can, you can derive that from, from working in ministry. That if my, the, what I bring to the table isn't the best, then, then my sacrifice or what I bring to God isn't good enough. That it's constant failure. It's constant self-condemnation. It's constant shame. Whatever you bring is not good enough. You always look at it and, and there's a, there's a difference between perfectionism and excellence. And I really struggled with that. And so the thing about comparison is that it says to you that your portion isn't enough. That what God has given you is not enough. That it should always be compared with what someone else is getting or what someone else is achieving. Someone gets the promotion that you held out for and it, it immediately reflects back on your worth. And that is not the truth. That is a lie. And so Havla Cunnington has this story about a $15 day. I don't know if, if you've heard of it, but it, it challenged my thinking in terms of um, orphanhood and comparison. And especially as a woman, I think, I think we are constantly, we constantly battle with that. And so she says that her oldest son, Levi, um, she said to him, if you want to do chores around the house, we're going to Disney, Disneyland in three weeks' time. And for every chore that you do, I'll give you one dollar. And she, she opened the invitation for the oldest son and the middle brother, um, Judah. And uh, the, the oldest son was like, yes, like the oldest personality in your house or the oldest son type of personality is like, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a dollar for every chore I do. And he started working and sweeping the floors and taking out the dustbin. And the, the middle brother, Judah, was on his phone and he was like, nah, I don't want to do it. Um, and so that was, that was Levi's assignment. Cut to three weeks later, they're in the car, they're on their way to Disneyland. Levi is just so uh, um, thrilled because he has $15 in his little envelope, and that is his um, reward for all the work that he has done. And um, Havila takes out an envelope, and she gives it to, to Judah, and she says, Judah, because it's Judah's birthday, she says, Judah, this is from... Um, your grandma and grand, granddad, and this is like a birthday card um, for your birthday. Open it up. Let's see what's in it. And he takes out the card, and uh, a $20 bill falls out onto his lap. And uh, everyone jumps up and is very excited and celebrates and like, yeah, you have $20. What are you going to buy with it? Ice cream. You're going to go on this roller coaster. You're going to buy a T-shirt. And uh, her eyes lock with Levi's eyes. And he sits there at the back and his eyes well up with tears. And it seems like a bomb is going to explode. And she says to him, Levi... He explodes and he says, it's not fair. Judah didn't work. Now he gets $20 and I had to work and I had to slave away and I couldn't play with my friends because I just wanted to get $15. And she stops him at that moment as she feels that Holy Spirit is, is like putting this revelation in her heart. And she says to him, Levi, you will not go without One day, when you get $20, you would want everyone to celebrate with you. And life looks like that most of the time. Most of the time, life looks like $15 days. We work for, for, for what we get, you know? Like, it's, that's what it looks like. And every now and then, when favor falls on you, and, and God really gives you that promotion, and there's just some, some, some form of increase, then you receive the $20 day. And in that moment, God was just saying, Simona, if you can't celebrate with people whom I promote, then, then that, 
disqualifies you from your own promotion. You disqualify yourself because it shows that the nature of your heart that you can't steward well and that what you have in the moment isn't enough. And then the second thing that I really struggled with is, is community. <laughs> for years, I, I was in Shofar for four years. I don't think I, I served once. I tried to, but I, I constantly felt isolated. I constantly found myself on the outskirts looking in, feeling that everyone is having a great time and I just have so much issues. I can't be in the family. I don't belong in family. And it was a spirit of illegitimacy that kept me from, from, from my destiny as being a daughter in the house of God. It's constantly just, just doing my own thing and working out my own salvation. And that is part of it. But there's something about community that God does through the saints. And there's something in, in healing in, within the saints and within the body. And so um, I really struggled with depression in that time as well because that's what the enemy wants to do is he wants to isolate you, to take you out. But when you are in community, I can promise you that there's so much joy to be derived. And there's a verse in Isaiah that says, um, you will draw joy from the wells of your salvation. And I just had this picture that at the well, usually when people drew water at the well, it wasn't a community. There were always people around at the well. It was a place where people gathered to draw water. And so, so plant yourself at that place, at that well, where you can draw water and draw joy from. Because I was completely delivered from depression. On a mission trip in 2012 to Namibia with a team from Shofar. And God just surrounded me with family. God surrounded me with people that loved me. And they just showed me how much joy there can be. And I wasn't isolated anymore. And every now and then when I feel that depression coming back, then I know I haven't been with my family. I haven't been in community. I've isolated myself. And then um, the lie that I'm only worthy when I am successful. Because identity is not in what we do. It's, it's in who we are in Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Me in Christ, the hope of glory. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.